This is episode 232 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are Cold or Flu, Here's How to Tell and Why You Need to Know, and Uncommon Survival Foods, Acorns. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version, with some commentary, of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey guys, I just wanted to remind you very quickly about the Prepper Bundle that is on sale. It is a great way to get a lot of preparedness content for a little amount of money. And I'm going to have a link for you in the show notes if you are interested in that. And I think you should go check that out. All right, so let's go ahead and jump right into uh, the articles for today. Uh, the Friday podcast I have some great ones for you. Uh, this first one comes to us from Daisy Luther over at the Organic Prepper, and uh, I really, you know, I really wanted to read this one because I think this is this is one that uh, a lot of people are are facing and dealing with right now. Uh, you know, going back to work and and seeing everybody that's there and knowing and hearing all the stories of uh, how people have been sick, and then reading online about uh, the flu and colds and how, how bad things have been out there. You know, I've, I've posted, and I believe it might have been this article or it might have been another article about the flu, and somebody on the Facebook page, not the group, but on the Facebook page, they responded, oh, the, the flu is bad every year, and this is not that big of a deal. But uh, that's not what you're hearing out there. I mean, you're hearing it that it's bad. And I know a lot of people that normally don't get the flu, that they have been dealing with it. And it's been going through families and, and uh, you know, on, on top of that, all the things that you hear out there uh, in, in the news. Not only in, uh, you know, the fake news, right, or the mainstream media, but also in the alternative media. And so I thought this one was, uh, was important to read. Because it does give us a little bit of information, things to look for. I think that's always uh, very handy when, you, uh, when you're talking about, you know, is it the cold? Is it the flu? Uh, you don't want to mess around with it. And so I think Daisy does a great job here. And then there's, some also, there's also some other links that you might want to go to uh, off of this one. So let's go ahead and read this one. Cold or flu, here's how to tell and why you need to know. You know the feeling. Your throat is dry. You feel tired and perhaps a little stuffy. Then a little cough starts, followed by that unmistakable taste in the mouth that screams a respiratory infection. How do you know when that stuffy nose and scratchy cough is just a cold and when it is something more serious like influenza, cold, or flu? Here's how to tell the difference. With the more virulent H3N2 influenza strain being widespread in almost every state in the U.S., it is so important to be able to tell the difference between the common cold and the flu. The H3N2 strain is a subtype of influenza A that is particularly hard on less robust populations. This would include young children, the elderly, pregnant women, and anyone with a compromised immune system such as diabetics and cancer patients. This year, H3N2 is proving deadly to healthy adults in addition to the more at-risk groups just mentioned. In my neck of the woods, this 51-year-old mother of two died from complications to influenza. This sadness shocked her family as she was generally healthy and they all thought it was just a cold. A 21-year-old fitness buff and a healthy 20-year-old mom have also died from the flu. 
While the flu can pose a potentially life-threatening risk to anyone, these are not your usual influenza deaths demographics. The fact that this is the 100-year anniversary of the Spanish flu of 1918, which targeted healthy adults, is not lost on me either. The anniversary itself is not an indicator of a pandemic, but it is a sobering reminder of how easily influenza can mutate. To complicate matters, this year's flu vaccine has proven less than effective at preventing infection. It is estimated that this year's flu vaccine is only 10% effective at preventing the flu. Influenza A strains are generally more serious than influenza B or C strains and mutate more frequently. A higher rate of mutation means a greater chance our immune systems will be unprepared to fight it. Cold or flu, here's how to tell. The tragedy is that most people who end up hospitalized or worse think they just have a bad cold. Both ailments start off with the same lousy, uncomfortable symptoms, so it can be hard to tell one from the other. They don't realize the seriousness of their situation until it's too late. So when is it a cold? The common cold is a group of over 200 different viruses that cause symptoms we call a cold. Approximately 40% of these are different strains of rhinovirus. Coronaviruses cause 20%, respiratory syncytial virus and human parainfluenza HPIV cause another 10%. Finally, the remaining 30% are caused by unknown viruses. A cold is typically less severe than the flu. A cold has less intense symptoms and has a shorter duration. Some of these symptoms include a stuffy or runny nose, one or the other, generally not both, sneezing, sore throat, mild to moderate, cough, body aches, fatigue, mild to moderate, fever, somewhat common in children, generally absent in adults, and duration is three to four days and up to a week in those with weak or compromised immune systems. So when is it the flu? Three types of influenza virus can cause the flu. Influenza A, B, and C. Influenza C is typically not a severe illness and may look like a moderate to bad cold. Influenza A and B, however, do cause serious illness in humans. The flu is more serious than a cold due to the secondary bacterial infections possible after the flu. Bronchitis and pneumonia are the most common of these secondary infections. Common flu symptoms include a stuffy and runny nose at the same time, sore throat, moderate to severe, deep hacking cough, frequent, dry, and non-productive, severe body aches, severe fatigue, fever with chills common to both children and adults, and the duration is up to two weeks. So does the color matter? This is a little gross, but we need to talk a little bit about phlegm. Doctors always ask if the phlegm you cough up, assuming your coughs are productive, have any color to them. I had always been told that if it was clear, it was just a cold, and if it were yellow or green, it was a bacterial infection, and I was given antibiotics. Unfortunately, that isn't accurate. In truth, the color of your phlegm is an indicator of how hard your immune system is working. The color is produced by a large concentration of infection-fighting white blood cells called neutrophils. Neutrophils have an enzyme that lends the green color. The color can be more noticeable because the mucus has become thick and more concentrated. The yellowish green is an indicator that your immune system is really working hard. It is not a way to distinguish between a viral or a bacterial infection. However, if you are seeing thick yellow or green mucus, 
it is a good indicator that you have a serious infection and should get checked out ASAP. When is it neither a cold or a flu? There are a few situations where symptoms may be similar to a cold or flu, but are something else entirely. A sinus infection has the same congestion as most colds. Sinus infections are caused by viruses, bacteria, fungi, nasal polyps, deviated septums, and allergic rhinitis. Fungal lung infections are another possibility. While fungal respiratory infections are rare, if your illness has lasted over three weeks, it is time to consider if a fungal infection is to blame. Bacterial infections such as bronchitis and pneumonia mentioned above are usually secondary illnesses. They can, in some cases, be the primary infection. A good example of this is tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is a bacterial infection that shares many symptoms of influenza. Seasonal allergies for example, hay fever, and indoor allergies like pet dander can look and feel like a cold. Making sense of it all. When you start to feel sick, start assessing yourself. Ask yourself, are my symptoms severe? Do I have difficulty regulating my body temperature because of fever or chills? Is my phlegm yellow or green? Do I have a deep hacking cough as opposed to a cough from post-nasal drip or a dry tickle? If you answered yes to any of these, you are more likely to have influenza than the common cold. Only a laboratory test can tell you definitely if you have influenza or not. Even then, most doctors do not test for the flu unless you ask for it. It will be recorded as an influenza-like illness or ILI. By paying attention to your symptoms early, however, you can spot a potentially dangerous infection early. Here are some home remedies that can help relieve the symptoms regardless of which element you have. Alright, so this uh, this article was actually written by Kat Ellis, who uh, is an herbalist and uh, was posted over at uh, Daisy Luther's website, theorganicprepper.com. And so I think it's a great, uh, great article over here and one that, uh, you know, we keep in mind because a lot of the times people talk about the cold and flu just like interchangeable, right? It's like, uh, well, if it what didn't last as long, okay, it was the cold. Uh, it was a cold, but if it lasted longer, it's the flu. And uh, you kind of, you know, go from there. I would really encourage you to come click on the link here in this article for home remedies. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a couple of home remedies that she talks about that would be good and, and things that maybe you might just start want to implementing uh, just when everybody is getting sick. Uh, that's one thing that I did, you know, when I was on the campus. I was always around kids and, uh, you know, kids who would wipe their nose and then would touch everything. And uh, I was always washing my hands. And if when I could, I was always, uh, at this time of the year, I'm always doing fist bumps with people instead of actually shaking their hands. Just to not, you know, uh, pass along any more germs than, than uh, are necessary, right? One of, the, one of the home remedies that she talks about here is elderberry syrup. And really, you can buy that as uh, over-the-counter called Sambucol. And it used to be when I first started looking into this, uh, you could only I could only get it on Amazon, but now I, I find it everywhere. You can get it at uh, any of the, the drugstores. The big major chains uh, usually sell it. And even like, uh, you know, Walmart. You could go to Walmart and I believe they sell it as well. And Sambucol has been known to, it was one of those that uh, was put up there and really tested. And by taking it early on, can have some of the same effects as Tamiflu. Now, 
uh, Daisy will tell you, and Cat Ellis will tell you, and I will tell you, we are not doctors and or any of that kind of stuff. But if it's something that you are interested in, and something like, hey, I'd like to have some home remedies because Tamiflu. I don't know if you've ever bought Tamiflu or if you bought it recently. It's very, very expensive. And so when uh, the flu starts going through your house, man, you're forking out some, you know, a lot of money there for something that might not even. Uh, well, it, it really only kind of lessens the severe severity of the flu, right? So it doesn't like, you know, uh, heal you up or anything like that. So, uh, but Sambacol is very uh, affordable and you can even take it uh, as a preventative type thing. And it's like a grape type flavor, berry type flavor uh, of, uh, of syrup. There were laboratory tests that tested it against uh, the flu and it was very, very favorable. Uh, but I believe that it had to be like the Sambacol brand uh, in order to do that. But uh, and, and if I can find that study, I believe that I, I posted that on Prepper website years ago. I'm going to try to find it and I will link to it in the show notes. If I don't, you'll just start Googling Sambacol or in laboratory tests and uh, you know check it out and see if that's something that you might be interested in. It might be something worth having you know, in your medicine cabinet, if you come home one day and you know that people have been sick at the office or, or, or whatever, you know, or you've been around people that you know have been sick, maybe you might want to start taking some of it. Uh, you feel a little run down, you might want to start uh, taking some of that. And uh, it, it might be very helpful, along with some of the other home remedy things that you can do. And, uh, you know, like honey and there's, you know, lemon and, and all that kind of stuff that helps with the symptoms and, and things that you might be dealing with. But uh, anyway, like I said, uh, you probably want to go check out this article and uh, click on that home remedy link. Uh, I think it, uh, it, was, you know, it was a lot of good information over there and uh, very well worth your time, especially when everyone is so sick out there right now. All right, so that's, uh, again, that's uh, cold or flu. Here's how to tell and why you need to know. That's over at theorganicprepper.com. All right, so um, it's on the Friday podcast. I always try to bring out an article from the archives of Prepper website. And, uh, you know, we, we have a tag cloud that you can go and you can research any topic. Uh, you know, you can go to Google and you can type it in and you can try to wade through that. But you know that the articles that I've posted on Prepper website are pertinent to preparedness or self-reliance. So when you go to Prepper website, you can go to the top right-hand corner and uh, do the little drop-down menu and select the link that says Prepper or Research Prepper Topics. And when you click on that, it'll take you to the tag cloud and it'll bring up all the different articles that we have posted in uh, different categories, right? And so uh, I always try to pull one of these out because there are, there's a bunch, a ton of great ones. You know, I started the podcast in February of 2017 and there's just, you know, I've been doing Prepper website for a while and there's just a ton of great articles out there. For instance, this one was written in October or released in October uh, of 2014. And so it's one of those uh, articles that uh, you might not put to use right away, but it's one of those things that you might want to use because when we talk about foraging and survival foods, one of the things that's out there are acorns. Everyone can identify an acorn. And so acorns are edible. You have to do a little bit of work. Some people might say it's not worth the work. But if you were in a situation where food was running, running low and you could forecast it a little bit, uh, the thing about acorns that this, that this article is going to tell well, first of all, it's going to tell you how to process them. But then one of the other things that this article talks about is that you can store 
acorns for up to a year. So, you know, depending on where you're at in the country and depending on if you have oak trees that are that are dropping acorns, this might be one of those that you want to file in the back of your mind and just know for the future because, uh, you know, you might be able to uh, to use this. So uh, this one's coming to us from survivalpedia.com. And like I said, the article is entitled Uncommon Survival Foods, Acorns. And it was written in October of 2014. So let's go ahead and read this one. Main issues with survival are fire, shelter, water, and food. And if you have run out of food, where can you find some more? So in that effort, here's one for the foraging for foods in the wilds department, gathering acorns as a food source. Today I'll just discuss the black oak and white oak, merely because they're larger acorns and will require the least amount of processing to obtain a quantity of food in return for the effort. One can consume the acorns from most any oak tree, but some, like the water oak, are tiny in comparison and will require a lot more time and energy per pound of returned food product. If you're fortunate enough to live in regions where we have the majestic black oak and white oak trees, you have a very useful but vastly underutilized food source in gathering their fairly large nuts. When gathering acorns, black oak in this example, don't waste time with these shown above. The one with the cap still firmly attached dropped off the tree prematurely and is no good. The center sample showing dark streaks is internally infected with a fungus. The third has obviously had a worm consume the nut meat and has left behind nothing usable. The cap on the usable acorn should already be off or can be popped off fairly easily with your thumb. After gathering an amount of acorn nuts, they should be washed to remove dirt and debris. After a brief wash, lay the acorns in a single, single layer in pans, tote, or storage bin lids, boards, tarps, skins, sheets, or other off-the-ground surfaces fully exposed to the sun to dry them for storage and for easier processing into food. The dry nuts will peel off more easily than messing with nuts right off the ground. Properly dried nuts will also store well for a year or more. Obviously, avoid leaving them out during rain and bring them in before dark every night to avoid dew condensing on the nuts. It will take a couple of weeks of continuous fall sunlight to dry black oak acorns. The white oak acorns will take a week or two longer. If the weather is not favorable, fall back to your wood stove, dehydrator, or other indoor methods. As for the wood stove or other stoves, your goal is dry nuts, not roasted. Perhaps some homemade racks or screen trays above the wood stove, about the height where you can comfortably keep your hand, say around 110 degrees Fahrenheit. After the acorns are dried, you will find they have shrunk in their shells just enough to be easy to crack and peel. Find a board and a small hammer or round smooth stone or whatever is handy. Place the acorn with its little pointy end down against a board or flat rock and tap it lightly with your hammer or stone. It should split openly fairly easily. Peel off the shell and inspect the nut meat, removing any remaining shell fragments. You can toss the nut meat into a pan of water to keep them from turning dark on you like cut apples do when exposed to the air doesn't really hurt anything if they do darken, but the finished product will also be darker. Don't worry about the reddish skin the nut meat has. It will be dealt with as we progress. The best method to remove the tannin from acorns is cold water leaching. 
which gives the best nutritional result if the end product of the acorn gathering is to be a flour substitute, alternative for breads, pie crust, etc. There are other methods, boiling water, lye, and other processing, which may even be slightly faster, but the end product is not so good for making acorn flour, and some of the food value is lost in the process. The boiling water process takes out most of the useful food starches, but makes up for it by providing an astringent water that has multiple uses, from tanning leather to working on poison, poison ivy rash. To begin the leaching process, you need to crush, grind, pound the acorn nuts into as small granules as possible, using a stone mortar and pistol, a couple of rocks, a food processor, blender, or even an inexpensive corn grain mill. The smaller the mush, the more quickly the cold water leaching process will work. Put the ground acorn material into a bowl or container large enough to hold however much you have made. Cover with generous amounts of water. Stir in the acorn meal until it's all well covered. Just let it sit, pouring off the amber-colored water twice a day without losing any of your acorn material. Recover the meal with fresh water and stir or shake the mix well. This continues for up to six or seven days and the water will start becoming reddish. The reddish water will now be there every time the water is replaced. How do we know when we're done? The acorn material will be kind of bland tasting and there will be no astringent or bitter taste sensation in your mouth. This will have to be a personal experience or matter of preference, but you'll want it bland for sure. To extract the maximum amount of water from the final stage of leaching for a week or so, pour off the water in the usual way. Take a colander and cover it with a clean cloth. Pour and scrape the acorn material into the cloth inside the colander. Now, wring the cloth and acorn material out as best you can, squeezing out as much water as possible. All done. If you intend to use the product within the next couple of days, just put it in your fridge or somewhere very cool and use it up in your baking. If you intend to use it much later, then dry your acorn flour out in the sunlight or near your stove or in your dehydrator, spreading the material in a nice thin layer to maximize the drying effect. Once completely dried, it can be stored like a regular flour or cornmeal. And then here's a recipe for acorn bread. Two cups of acorn flour, two cups of cattail or white flour, three teaspoons of baking powder, one third cup of maple syrup or sugar, one egg, half a cup of milk, three tablespoons of olive oil, bake in a pan for 30 minutes or until done at 400 degrees. Using the ingredients given above will produce a sweet, moist, nutty bread. The ingredients can be varied to produce different types of bread or muffins or pancakes, etc. Acorn bread is highly nutritious. It has an energy-given combination of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. So mom, what's for dinner, says the kid. Mom says, nuts to you, acorns, that is. All right, so uh, that's it for this article. And uh, one of those, again, like I said, you want to file in the back of your, of your mind if you're ever in one of those survival situations. Now, here's the deal. It's going to take a while to get it to this process, right? Now, you can, uh, I've always read, and we do have a lot of other articles on acorn processing uh, on Prepper website. Uh, you know, I've always read that you can boil it and to get the tannins out. 
but like this article says, you're going to lose some of the nutritional value when you boil it off. You know, other articles have always said to uh, you want to uh, maybe collect your acorns and then put them in a, a, a running river. Like a, if you have a, a river or a stream that you have running water, cold water, that will help to. Uh, so you, you would put it like in a mesh bag and then anchor it somehow and then let the water run over it. Uh, you know, in in the stream or river or whatever, and that would help to get the wash the tannins out of the uh, of the acorns. But it's one of those things that uh, you have to work at it a little bit. But it's one of those edibles that everyone can identify very easily. You just need to to work on it. So, for instance, if you were in a survival situation and uh, maybe you know it is the poop hit the fan, and you go out and you can start thinking about this and working on this ahead of time, right? It would be one of those things where before you ran out of food, you would be doing this, right? And then you would be cutting in the acorn flour with other uh, with other flour that you have uh, if you, you know, if you still have some, uh, those kinds of things. So, um, you know, I'd be curious, right? Uh, and you might be curious to find out other ways to eat acorns other than just making flour. There's, uh, there's uh, other ways as well. And so you can go to Prepper website and research that and get a little bit more information there too. But uh, one of those things where we have uh, forgotten those lost skills and maybe not even our ancestors, but those that lived here a long time before us, right? The American Indians, you know, how did they use them? How did they process them? Uh, Those types of things. There's a couple of uh, pictures on this article. Um, You know, it has a picture of the immature uh, acorn, the fungus acorn, and the acorn that was eaten with the worm. Uh, and then you have a couple of pictures of the white oak and the California black oak and uh, some links that you can click on here. But, uh, you know, wild edibles is one of those things. Foraging is one of those things that, uh, you know, uh, you should look into just a little bit. You know, when we talk about skills and we talk about things that uh, we should know, having knowledge, Having a little bit of knowledge of the wild edibles around your area might be a good thing. Uh, I know here in the Houston area, there's uh, we have uh, you know, Forging Texas, uh, ForgingTexas.com. Meriwether is uh, uh, Dr. Meriwether does classes for us in, at the Arboretum, and so you could go and take uh, the Houston Arboretum, and you can take classes there. He also came out with a book. Uh, I, I think it's one of those idiots guide to foraging or foraging for dummies, but it has a very high uh, review rate on Amazon. And so I know people had said, I don't like buying any book that says, you know, calling me a dummy or an idiot's guide or whatever. And, uh, you know, maybe, you know, in hindsight, that wasn't the best title or, you know, going with that, going with that, uh, you know, those, those types of books. But it is a very good book, has a lot of pictures. He knows what he's doing. And so that might be one that you might want to pick. But, you know, there's other people that teach uh, foraging out there, you know, all over the United States. Or if you're listening to this podcast, you know, in other parts of the world. And, uh, you know, just doing a little bit of research, maybe going to, uh, you know, uh, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, agricultural extension, uh, going to, uh, you know, talking to some botanists, talking to people around, you know, even nurseries around, and then you might have some knowledgeable people that know, you know, what are the, the common wild edibles in our area, and you can start doing some research online, maybe even printing, maybe you start a little journal, right? You print off some uh, color pictures of, of what the plant would look like, what the leaves look like, 
in the different seasons. What does it look like in the summer, fall, spring, winter? Uh, you know, those types of things. And then, you know, go and try to identify them and see if you have them around you. You know, you might be very... Uh, very much surprised that you have some wild edibles around and uh, people would call them common weeds but there are things that you can eat if you ever were in a survival situation so I think that's uh, that would be great and I have talked about that before in the past I'm going to link to uh, Mary Weathers book on the on the the podcast website I can't leave it in the show notes because it'll go to Amazon and uh, Amazon does not like that. So it has for Amazon, it has to come from a website. So just FYI, if you're interested in, in going straight to that book, you can come over to the website and uh, episode 232 and go ahead and, and link over there and uh, check that out. I think it's a well worth book to, uh, to have uh, and uh, to, to be able to research with that. Hey guys, if you're listening to us for the very first time, hey, thanks so much for stopping by. Hey, don't forget that you can subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast network, and uh, we can you get the podcast delivered straight to your device without fail. Hey, if this weekend you are looking for some more preparedness uh, material, don't forget that you can come over to PrepperWebsite.com, and that is you know that is the website where we. Find all of the articles that we read on the podcast. Uh, we upload articles and we link to articles 24-7 on, on Prepper website. And so all the best preparedness content there and uh, more more articles that we possibly could ever read here on the podcast. So if you if you want some more, if you're looking for, for more preparedness information, go check out Prepper website and uh, PrepperWebsite.com and you will see you'll have, you, tons of information. Uh, we also have pages that are uh, directly uh, or very specific to different uh, topics. So we have some that are alternative news uh, just for firearms. So if you're into firearms, Second Amendment type stuff, if you're into DIY, if you're into frugal living, uh, you know, there's, there's specific pages for for those uh, for those topics, and you can go and get a ton of information over there. And so, uh, you know, welcome you to come over to Prepper website this weekend, and you know, learn a little bit more, get some more knowledge there as you go out and you practice your skills, and uh, you become more self reliant. Don't forget that uh, the Facebook group is always there. We'd love for you to to come and be a part of that. And uh, we also have the email list, and hopefully you will join that as well. When you join that, I'll send you out a free PDF that has uh, nine of my uh, friends in the preparedness community sent me their seven top items for their survival kits. And uh, I put that together in a PDF, and I'd love to be able to send that to you. Hey, guys, make sure this weekend you stay safe and warm. Uh, still crazy weather out there, and uh, you know we'll see you next week. So with that... Choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next week, stay prepped and aware. Peace.